Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. question that we want to address in this special bonus episode today is this. Is evangelical Christianity a cult? And that's a very difficult question to parse. We want to break it down. Specifically, we're going to look at this from the point of view of cult psychology. Now, this is a tough one, as I say, because on one level, you'd have to immediately say, no, evangelicalism cannot possibly be a cult because Certainly in America, and indeed worldwide, which has been imported, or I should say exported worldwide. If you've ever gone to any other country, I've been to Africa, I went to Kenya back in 2001 when I was still a Christian. We did a church planting thing, we built a church, we did a bunch of evangelistic missions in Nairobi and other places around Kenya. And one thing we noticed right away was that all the Kenyans that we spoke with either wanted to go to America to study at a Bible college, I'm talking about the Christians that we encountered, or the leaders of various churches, certainly in Nairobi, we got in touch with a church called the Deliverance Church in in Nairobi, and they're one of the fastest growing churches in East Africa, and all the leaders had been to the States, they had studied at Bible colleges and or seminaries in the States, and what we found right away was that their theology was very similar to ours. And of course, that just makes sense because they, they'd studied in America. They'd studied under white, generally white theologians, preachers, pastors, Bible scholars, and they brought that back to Africa and they were spreading it themselves. So it's been exported worldwide. And certainly, if you've been listening to my show at all, you know that I've been talking a lot about Dominion theology, which is a whole nother kind of storyline. But it is related to this one because, of course, It's been spread worldwide in an effort to establish Christian hegemony, Christian dominion over the planet. And part of that is, of course, the theology that goes with it, which is oftentimes white, Western, sort of wasp theology. And that's been exported everywhere. Even when I was a Bible college teacher up in Leeds, most of my students were from Ethiopia and Eritrea, that sort of area of Africa. And again, I found that their theology was very, very fundamentalist. It was charismatic, but very fundamentalist because, of course, they'd been trained and taught by American or Western missionaries there in Africa, and they just brought that back over to the UK when they moved here to set up a new life. And they were trying to plant churches around Leeds and Bradford area with that same theology. So it's just kind of a mix, a toxic mix. But going back to my question, is evangelicalism a cult? Well, in a way, no, because, of course, it's not a monolith. It's a massive movement. There's not one sole leader like you think of a typical cult, like a Keith Renere of Nexium or Jim Jones of the People's Temple or uh, David Koresh of uh, the Branch Davidians down in Waco, Marshall Applewhite, on and on and on. Most cults have a single leader, typically a man. There are some women there are cult leaders out there, but it's very rare. It's a, it's a phenomenon, really, that you have a woman leader of a cult. So they don't have a single leader that's not a monolith, it's massively diverse in terms of a movement. So 
it, it can't be a cult on that level. It's just too diverse. It's too big. It's too, it's, there's too many differences across the board. However, when you go into that individual local church or denomination, what you then start to find, and this is my argument, that the psychology, the tactics, the things that are used on the individual, not only just the recruits who are thinking about joining the church or becoming a Christian, but those who are already long-standing members, the behavior controls. In fact, we could just plug in uh, Dr. Stephen Hassan's BITE model, B-I-T-E, behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. Right away, we can say, in so many cases, yes, that church is operating very, very much like a cult would. So on that level, that's where I'm going to assess it. Now, I've told this story before in many other podcast episodes, but what got me to thinking along these lines was several years ago here in the UK on the Crime and Investigation television channel, they had a series called Twisted Faith Week, and it was, I think, about five or six documentaries. Each one was about an hour long, and they were from people from completely different sort of cult backgrounds. You had ex-Scientologists one day, you'd have an ex-Jehovah's Witness another, an ex FLDS, Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, the Warren Jeffs cult. Uh, you had a Nation of Islam, ex-cult member, you know, ex-Family of God members. And on paper, those cults should have nothing to do with each other. But there were two things that I noticed right away as I started watching each of these documentaries. One was that the stories they told individually, of course, these people had no knowledge of the other people on the series. The stories that they told in terms of how they were recruited controlled, managed, the mind control, the destructive aspects of the cult, the shunning if they if they left the cult, all these things were sort of universal right across the board. And then the other thing that I noticed was that what really shocked me was that their stories were so similar to mine. Now I grew up in a fundamentalist home. I say now I was raised in a cult. If you listen to any of my episodes where I talked about growing up under the Bill Gothard, the Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts, as it was called back in the 70s and 80s, it's now called the IBLP, Institute in Basic Life Principles, that is a cult. It's still ongoing, even though Bill Gothard has been disgraced, he's been removed due to numerous sexual abuse allegations leveled against him. Uh, he's never had to face any real accountability for it, unfortunately, but at least he's no longer the head of IBLP. However, it still goes on. They have a massive homeschooling arm. They're very involved in prison ministries and public school ministries, orphanages in, in places like Russia and Romania, Ukraine. I mean, they've got a lot of things going on, and they still use Bill Gothard's material. That's the critical part about it. So I was raised in a cult. I didn't know it until I started looking into the psychology of it and I saw these documentaries on that Crime and Investigation channel, that Twisted Faith Week series. And in fact, I was going to mention, I've been in chats with my sister Valerie. We recorded an episode talking about our experiences growing up in a fundamentalist family in the Bill Gothard cult system way back in 2017. And I'm going to re-release that episode of all the hundreds of episodes I've done over the last five or six years or so that I've been doing this podcast. I would still say... That one with my sister Valerie is one of the most powerful ones I've ever done. So in terms of this issue of cult psychology, being raised in a fundamentalist sort of Bible cult, the Bill Gothard movement, look for that coming out at some point here. I'm going to be re-releasing that episode that Valerie and I did years ago. 
But that's what happened. I started to educate myself in terms of this issue of cult psychology, cult tactics, how it was used on me. And this is what's so fascinating about the whole thing. On paper, again, I shouldn't have anything in common with someone like Chris Shelton, who's an ex-Scientologist. But yet, when we compared stories, our stories were remarkably similar in terms of, as I say, the mind control, even the recruitment on the front end, and then leaving the cult being shunned and all the rest of it. So I think, okay, there's something here. There's clearly something here. I've spoken to way too many people. I've corroborated this, the evidence basically numerous times. This is a thing. So I would say on that level, evangelical churches can certainly operate in terms of cult psychology. For example, look at how many celebrity pastors have basically turned their church into some sort of a cult of personality. I don't know how many of you have been listening to the Christianity Today series on the Mars Hill Seattle church phenomenon, but Mark Driscoll, I argue, was a cult leader. In fact, still is now. He's got another church out of Scottsdale, Arizona, and that has become even more cult-like than the Mars Hill Seattle thing was. And so there's many, many examples of celebrity pastors or pastors who became essentially a cult leader on some level And my argument is that Mars Hill Seattle was a toxic cult of personality. In fact, I did an episode a few months ago with Dr. Warren Throckmorton, and we talked about that, how I think Christianity Today is totally missing the point, and they've never come out and said this, that Mars Hill was a cult. But that's one prime example of an evangelical church that I believe was basically nothing more than a cult, and a very destructive one at that. There's no question about that. The legacy of Mars Hill is unbelievably destructing the damage. There are people even today, years after the place is closed down and everyone's gone their separate ways in a way, there are people who are still damaged, who are still hurt, who were hurt and just really devastated by their experience either of Mark Driscoll or just being at Mars Hill and being caught up in the toxicity of what I consider a destructive cult. What I want to do in this episode is I'm going to look at Dr. Robert J. Lifton's Eight Markers of Cults. Now, he identified these originally in his book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, and he also has an article that basically distills those eight cult markers. So I'm going to be dipping into both of those. And the thing about this that's so fascinating is not only are we going to look at each of those eight markers of cults, we're going to discuss them. But what I love about Lifton's work is that not only does he describe the actual tactic and how it's used on the individual group member, cult member, whatever you want to call it, He also, in the book, he discusses the psychological effects of each one on the individual. And that is really, really critical in terms of your rebuilding of your identity. In other words, if you've left religion behind, if you left a cult, if you left a religious belief system, a toxic, destructive group on any sort of level, maybe you've been shunned now, maybe you've lost your relationship with family and friends and all the rest of it. In fact, just the other day, I watched that Vice documentary called Crusaders, and it's all, it was just something, I, I think it came out a year or two ago, but it's, it's on YouTube. You should definitely go watch it. It's an expose of the Jehovah's Witnesses' destructive cult. And they talk about really two things. They talk about, one, how the Jehovah's Witnesses have uh, covered up numerous, I mean, thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of cases of child abuse by leaders within the church, people within the kingdom halls worldwide, not just in America, but literally worldwide. This is a systemic ongoing problem within the Jehovah's Witness organization, and they've doubled down. They have this thing called the two witness rule, which is taken from an obscure verse in the Old Testament that basically says that if there's any crime 
or something terrible happens one person to another, the person who committed that crime or the act cannot be credibly con uh, you know, accused or convicted unless there are two witnesses. That's the two witness rule. And of course, in the case of a person abusing a child sexually, there's never two witnesses, almost never. It's just the child and the adult, the individual who's doing the abuse to that poor child. And so even then when it's reported to the elders at the local kingdom hall, they'll turn around and say, well, there weren't two witnesses. So we this isn't a credible accusation or allegation. So on that basis alone, tens of thousands of cases of child sexual abuse have not been reported to authorities and in fact have been covered up with the end result that the abuser feels free, of course, to continue abusing children. And that's what happens. And then the second thing they touch on is the blood transfusion law within Jehovah's Witnesses, the cult of the JWs. And again, that's based on a super obscure set of verses from the Bible about not eating the blood of an animal that's been killed. You have to drain the blood out. And from that, somehow they've extrapolated that when you're sick and you're in need of a blood transfusion at the hospital, it's against Jehovah's law to get a blood transfusion. And how many tens of thousands of mostly children, but adults as well, have died needlessly. All they ha had to do was get a blood transfusion and their life would have been spared. A fairly simple, straightforward medical procedure. Religiously, the elders will say no, and they will even send a what they call a hospital liaison team to the hospital to try and convince the family members not to allow that person who just needs a blood transfusion not to get one because if they do, it's against Jehovah's law and I guess they're going to go straight to hell. So again, this is just an example of what a destructive cult can do. So we'll look at the psychology of it because that's one of the things that comes across very clearly in that Crusaders documentary, the, the victim stories, the effects that it's had on them in terms of their own psychology, losing friends, losing family members, being disfellowshipped is what the JWs call it being shunned and cut off from their former community and now having to rebuild their lives. So this is hugely important to understand the psychological effects because you need to rebuild your life. You need to basically reassert or find your original identity. Your religious identity, that's like two things and something that Robert J. Lifton talks about, it's a thing called doubling. And what happens when you, especially when you're an adult or an older person who enters into a religion you or a cult, what happens is you have your authentic self, but then you start to adopt this other persona that's a doubling process, what he calls doubling. And that is where you begin to take on the religious identity to fit in with the group, right? So you understand how the, how the group functions and you begin to adopt. And in churches, we used to say it's called wearing the mask. You become an actor, you become something other than who you really are in order to fit in. You understand the rules. A lot of them are unspoken rules and you sort of fit in. Well, after you leave that group, you leave that cult, you discover that all the years you spent within and sort of adopting that second personality, that religious person that wasn't really you at all, you are now rejecting all that and you have to go back in, into the past as it were, and you have to find, reestablish who you really are, your authentic self. You've been suppressing that person for years, decades, maybe your whole life. And so this is what happens. This is all part of the journey. And Lifton says, it's like a person who's been in prison 
for decades and you come out of that jail cell and you've been sheltered, you've been cloistered away from the real world. Meanwhile, everything else has been going on. Life for everyone else has been moving on, but you haven't moved on. You've been stuck in that prison cell. And so you've got to come out and it's very, very, very difficult to readjust to quote normal life after you've been in that jail cell. And it's, it's a psychological prison basically is what he says. Being in a cult, being in a religion, is akin to being in a psychological prison for years and years, decades, maybe your whole life. And so that's part of why it's so important to understand the psychological effects of what this does. So anyway, having said all that, this is the MindShift Podcast. I forgot to introduce myself, but those of you that have been listening to me, you know that I'm Dr. Clint Haycock, and I'm going to bring you this episode talking about Robert J. Lifton's Eight Markers of Cults, looking at the question, is evangelicalism a cult? And we want to assess it from the point of view of the work of Dr. Robert J. Lifton, primarily from the book Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism. All right, let's start assessing this question. Is evangelicalism a cult? Drawing primarily, as I say, on the work of Dr. Robert J. Lifton, who literally wrote the book on how brainwashing works. This is taken from his seminal work on the subject. As I mentioned before, his 1961 work, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, a study of brainwashing in China. Now, this arose as part of his investigative study or his psychological study of former prisoners of war. They were prisoners of communist China back during the Korean War. And after the war, what happened was Lifton interviewed both ex-servicemen and other prisoners of the Chinese communist, they called them thought reform centers, they had clearly been brainwashed. And this was really freaking out the people in the West because they were saying, wait a minute, uh, how had this been accomplished? They were very frightened by the fact that the Chinese communists had been able to do this to their servicemen as well as other prisoners who just happened to live in communist China and just were caught up in that dragnet. So from those interviews, Lifton was able to encapsulate or break down the eight major tactics that the communists had used to brainwash these unfortunate prisoners. They had endured unspeakable torture and privation at the hands of their captors. Not only has Lifton's work proven to be an invaluable resource for those studying the tactics of mind control, undue influence, and just brainwashing in general, it is also shown to be extremely helpful in identifying the tactics used by cults also. Then in 1991, Lifton wrote a short paper for the Cultic Studies Journal entitled Cult Formation, in which he distilled the eight markers of cults he had originally laid out in more detail in his book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism. What I'm going to provide for you is the following information. It's a combination of those two, as I mentioned before. Lifton's eight markers of cults, as identified both in his book and then later in his article, as well as I mentioned also an invaluable addition, the psychological effects of each tactic. There are two elements then in recovering from a cultic experience, I would say. Number one is naming and identifying the actual tactics that were used on you by the organization or by the leader. And then number two, understanding the psychological effects of each of those mind control techniques, what they had on you. So as I said before, in terms of reconstructing one's identity, post-cult or post-religion, the following information I'm going to provide for you should be of immense help to you as you seek to put the pieces back together. I would also mention just real quickly that in addition to this episode, I would recommend that you go back and listen to an episode 
uh, of the Sensibly Speaking podcast. That's the one that ex-Scientologist Chris Shelton and I did a few years ago, back in 2019. It explores each of these markers in, de in detail. What we did is we compared our experiences. He as an ex-Scientologist, me as an ex-Evangelical. We talked about not only how were each of those tactics used on us in our various religions, but also the psychological effects as well. So check out that episode of the Sensibly Speaking podcast. So just real briefly, let me lay out for you the actual names of each of the eight markers of cults as identified by Dr. Robert J. Lifton. Number one is milieu control. Number two is mystical manipulation, what he also calls planned spontaneity or the psychology of the pawn. Number three is the demand for purity. Number four is a cult of confession. Number five is sacred science. Number six is loading the language, otherwise called loaded language or thought terminating cliches is what Dr. Stephen Hassan calls them. Number seven is doctrine over person. And then finally, number eight is the dispensing of existence. And before we get into these eight, I just want to mention that I believe that they run in a sort of a series. It's almost like a line beginning with milieu control, the cult or the group goes through the first two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and if you leave the group, you will be dispensed with, If you, you'll be shunned. And so they, each one sort of leads into the next one. I think it, it does have a sort of a series kind of an effect to it. All right, so let's look at each one of these in turn. We wanna look at their details as well as their psychological effects on the individual within that cult or group. Number one is milieu control. That is the control of all the communication within the environment. And as I mentioned before, I think it correlates to cult expert Stephen Hassan's information control in his bite model of cults or groups with undue influences. Lifton comments, quote, In such an environment, individual autonomy becomes a threat to the group. There is an attempt to manage an individual's inner communication. Milieu is maintained and expressed by intense group process continuous psychological pressure and isolation by geographical distance, unavailability of transportation, or even physical restraint. Often, the group creates an increasingly intense sequence of events such as seminars, lectures, and encounters, which makes leaving extremely difficult both physically and psychologically, end quote. And that's from his article, Cult Formation. Now, the effect on the individuals, Lifton comments from his book, quote, the most basic is the disruption of balance between self and the outside world. Pressured toward a merger of internal and external milieu, the individual encounters a profound threat to his personal autonomy. He is deprived of the combination of external information and inner reflection, which anyone requires to test the realities of the environment and maintain a measure of identity separate from it. At this point, he is subject to the hostility of suffocation, the resentful awareness that his strivings toward new information, independent judgment, and self-expression are being thwarted, end quote. And you can see here, this is where, this is how cults work. This is how many, many evangelical churches work. There is a control of the milieu, the environment, and you enter into it. We're going to get more into that in the next one, which is the mystical manipulation. 
but you begin to separate and you can see your identity starts to get separated from your true self. And there's this disruption, this hostility of suffocation and your, your self-expression is being thwarted. You begin to get sucked into the group. And certainly we see in many, many churches that keep you so busy. You're doing something every night of the week. And again, this is where it's such an insidious thing. People would say, well, my church is in a cult. Yes, but you're doing something every night of the week. It's completely sucked you in. You're setting up for this event. You're tearing down for that event another night. You're going to a home Bible study. You're going to a Wednesday night service. You're going to a prayer meeting. Something is happening every day, every night of the week, and it can become your entire identity. But what you don't realize is that that milieu is completely controlled by the people at the top. You're ingesting their message, their worldview. And over time, it just suppresses your authentic identity. Moving on, then, number two is mystical manipulation or planned spontaneity, what Lifton refers to as the psychology of the pawn. From his article, he says, quote, The process is managed so that it appears to arise spontaneously. To its objects, it rarely feels like manipulation. Religious techniques such as fasting, chanting, and limited sleep are used, end quotes. So cults make use of such tactics. We've seen this time and time again, such things as extended prayer sessions, churches use speaking in tongues, chanting, meditation, memorizing scripture, ecstatic worship services, sleep deprivation, and on and on. Just as an example, from my own experience, I would say that many worship services in evangelical churches, they only appear to be spontaneous and free-flowing. We used to say it was free-flowing in the Holy Spirit. But the reality is it's very controlled. It's not spontaneous at all. It's carefully planned. It's carefully managed. Just think about it from the choice of the songs in the worship set to the lighting that's used. They are designed, that's, that service is designed to take the worshiper, take the participant on an emotional journey from high, high energy at the beginning. And then the songs come down. They're more contemplative. The lighting comes down. And then here comes the sermon. So it's all very carefully managed. It's all very carefully controlled. And there's this crowd of people that's all involved in it. And it seems spontaneous, but the fact is, it's carefully stage managed. So what are the effects on individuals? Well, Lifton points out in his book that, quote, the psychological responses to this manipulative approach revolve around the basic polarity of trust and mistrust. One is asked to accept these manipulations on the basis of ultimate trust or faith. But such elemental trust is difficult to maintain. Even the strongest can be dissipated by constant manipulation, end quote. I mean, studies have shown, this is something that Conway and Siegelman have done years ago. They showed in a study that such repetition, things like chanting and tongues and singing the same song over and over, it actually has a neurological impact on our brains. It's imprinted. Beyond merely a learned habit, such practices are extremely difficult from which to break free because they're actually imprinted, implanted on our brains. And so that's why even years and years later, I can hear a worship song that I used to sing, even though I haven't been in church for decades, and it's boom, I'm right back in a time and in a place. And that's because it's, apparently it's been imprinted on my brain. So that's the effect of the psychology of the pawn, mystical manipulation or planned spontaneity. And think about, especially in terms of the recruit to that evangelical church, one comes into the service and you're caught up in that emotional experience. It seems free-flowing. It seems spontaneous. It's, it's amazing. It, it truly is an emotional journey. 
But the fact is, you are being manipulated. You are but a pawn in this larger game. Number three, then, is the demand for purity. Now we're talking about the point where the actual member has been manipulated. He or she has been pulled into the group, joined the church, let's say, in our example, and become a Christian. Now you're involved in this thing. What is the demand for purity? Well, he points out that, quote, the demand for purity is a call for radical separation of good and evil within the environment, that's the milieu, and within oneself. Purification is a continuing process, often institutionalized in the cult of confession, which is the next marker, which enforces conformity through guilt and shame evoked by mutual criticism and self-criticism in small groups, end quote. That's from his Cult Formation article. And again, evangelicalism, the evangelical purity culture, that is the, probably the most prime, the greatest example of how churches use this tactic to control their followers. The demand for sexual purity, especially among young men and women, that is a super effective tool by which to control and manipulate members. And that sets them up, as I said, for the next marker, which is the cult of confession. I cannot tell you as well how many accountability groups I was a part of as an evangelical, and that's part of this cult of, or the demand for purity, basically what happens is the leadership imposes on the members an impossible standard. And that's, of course, all from the Bible, so they would say. But that's what God requires of you and I as Christians. But it's impossible. We'll never, ever live up to it. And he talks about that. You're, you're mutually criticized and you're encouraged to self-criticize in these small groups, accountability groups or purity culture. And you're never going to survive it. You're never going to make it. Well, the demand for purity, it's a bifurcated approach to all of life. It's a black and white thing. It sharply divides the experiential world into, quote, the pure and the impure, into the absolutely good and the absolutely evil. All taints and poisons which contribute to the ex existing state of impurity must be searched out and eliminated, end quote. That's from his book. So what he's describing is what's called a Manichaean worldview, as I mentioned. It's a black and white sort of polarity. It's right and wrong, good and evil, black and white. The idea is that absolute purity is attainable, whatever the group or leaders describe as that goal, and quote, that anything done to anyone in the name of this purity is ultimately moral, end quote, he says. In other words, I've, I've seen many, many times this has happened to me as a Christian, people will absolutely destroy a relationship with another fellow Christian all in the name of, quote, being right. Yes, but I was right. What you feel about it doesn't matter. I've confronted you with your sin where I think you're falling short. And so therefore, as he says, anyone done to anyone else in the name of that purity culture is right. As long as I'm right in what I said, I don't care that it hurts you. You're wrong and you're evil and therefore tainted. And I've seen that so many times. And like I said, it's happened to me in the church. Well, what's the effect on the individual psychologically? On the level of the relationship between the person and the environment, the church setting, let's say, Lifton indicates, quote, that the demand for purity creates what we may term a guilty milieu and a shaming milieu. There's that polarity. Since each man's impurities are deemed sinful and potentially harmful to himself and to others, he is, so to speak, expected to receive punishment, which results in a relationship of guilt with his environment, end quote, from his book. 
Moreover, the individual like, will likely not be able to measure up to the standards laid out by the group or the leader, thus reinforcing shame and guilt upon one's inevitable failure. And I've seen this so many times, I've had it happen to me. Okay, you feel guilty, you feel sinful, you have wronged your fellow believer as well as you've sinned against God. You are then expected to receive some form of punishment, either from God or from your fellow Christians. And you could be disfellowshipped, you could receive church discipline, and that is expected. You are expected to receive that punishment if you have done something wrong. And Lifton talks about that in somewhere, somewhere else. He says that guilt and shame are like psychological levers. They're one of the, the two of the most powerful psychological levers by which we can manipulate people. If I can lay guilt on you and shame on you such that you feel really bad and you expect to deserve punishment, I can more easily, as the leader, manipulate you. And so this guilt and shame are hugely important in terms of the sort of cult tactics and psychology that churches use on their members. And then leading into the next one, off the back of the purity culture or the demand for purity is number four, a cult of confession. Lifton comments that, quote, closely related to the demand for absolute purity is an obsession with personal confession. And he's already kind of mentioned this a little bit before. He goes on, he says, confession is carried out beyond its ordinary religious, legal, and therapeutic expressions to the point of becoming a cult in itself, end quote. Now, look at this list. This could involve, for example, confession of crimes or sins that one hasn't committed, including thought crimes. And that's back to Hassan's bite model. The T stands for thought control. And part of the thought control is where you have to police your own thoughts. You could commit a thought crime against your fellow believer or against God. Other crimes might include sinfulness that's artificially induced, all in the name of an arbitrarily imposed cure. So in other words, the gospel message is basically, you have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Paul says. The cure is salvation. And so we that's the first part of becoming a Christian. Confess your sin, repent of your sins, accept Jesus as your Savior, because only God can provide the cure for your sin problem that's, that's destined you to hell from birth, because the fact is you're born into sin. The truth is, in this cult of confession, that we're all susceptible to being manipulated through those emotional levers of guilt and shame. Lifton goes on to say, quote, in totalist hands, in other words, the leaders of these groups or churches or cults, confession becomes a means of exploiting rather than offering solace for these vulnerabilities, end quote. So it's not really about helping people. It's you have to confess, confess so I can manipulate you, so I can exploit you. I'm not here to help you. I want to control you. And as I mentioned, evangelical accountability groups, in air quotes, they are probably the most prime example of the cult of confession. There's been so many instances as well in which church members have been publicly called out on their sins. They've been forced to confess in front of the group. We had a lady in our church when I was a pastor in Portland, and she would talk about she had this church group that she had been a part of in North Portland, where it was an absolute controlling cult. They had actually moved up to Portland from Northern California. The leader just announced one Sunday, we're all going to move to Portland, sell your homes, quit your jobs, you know, sell your businesses, whatever, cut all ties. 
We're all going to Portland. This was a hugely high control group, a destructive cult. And one of the things that she talked about was sitting in these circles in the church hall and they would go around the room and point out everyone's sins around the room. And if you were really sinful, you'd be called up in front of the group and everybody would rip you to shreds in front of the group until you had confessed and done your penance, whatever it might have been. And so that's that's an extreme example, but that kind of stuff does happen, e even in your sort of mainstream evangelical groups, maybe not that extreme, but you have these accountability groups where you have to confess your sins and your shortcomings in front of the group. So what's the effect of the cult of confession on the individual? This is this sort of sinister part. At the beginning, it seems it's genuinely helpful to the individual. I mean, in the sense that confession, it is genuinely emotionally cathartic. It helps you get rid of your suppressed feelings of guilt, your shame. It brings an existential sense of psychological relief. So Lifton comments, he says, quote, from his book, the sharing of confession enthusiasms can create an orgiastic sense of oneness, of the most extreme intimacy with fellow confessors, and of the dissolution of the self into the great flow of the movement, end quote. So in other words, it, it is cathartic, and this is something that Chris Shelton mentioned, that how do people get sucked into Scientology is they come in generally off the streets into a Scientology center, they go undergo basically a form of counseling, a form of therapy, and they start to confess their, you know, problems or issues, their shortcomings, their failures, whatever it might be. It is genuinely cathartic. It is emotionally a release. But then that's how they pull you in. You need more of this. You need more of this. You need, And that's how they get pulled into Scientology. Same kind of thing in evangelicalism. You genuinely feel a sense of relief when you confess your sins. But he goes on, there's also the possibility of genuine self-revelation and self-betterment by the, quote, true exposure of what I am as an individual. And this is even more so as your fellow members seem to accept you as you really are. You bear your soul to them. However, over time, as the individual fails to live up to the demands for purity, which was the last marker, he or she will continue to confess his or her sins and is therefore susceptible to being manipulated by the group or by the leader via the exploitation of your guilt and shame mechanisms, the levers I was talking about. Also, notice that the group or leader is the only entity that one needs to overcome one's shortcomings. Thus, the thought of leaving the group and therefore the connection to wholeness or forgiveness or whatever is very difficult to contemplate. So already within the system, they're starting to build in checks against you leaving. I need this. I need this sort of, you know, uh, confession. I need to confess. It's sort of like that's, there's a scene in the beginning of the Fight Club, the movie Fight Club, where the Edward Norton character, he's, he's addicted to going to these groups. He's, he's at AA meetings and all sorts of other meetings. He's not an alcoholic. He just loves the emotional release that comes from these people confessing all their problems. And it's hard to think about leaving these groups. And that's kind of what this can become. It's kind of like it's a lifeline, even though it's seriously difficult to leave this cult of confession. So moving on then, number five is what he calls sacred science. From his article, he says, quote, sacred science is important because a claim of being scientific is often needed to gain plausibility and influence in the modern age, end quote. So in his book, Lifton explains further, he says, quote, the totalist milieu, that's this, this controlling environment, it maintains an aura of sacredness around its basic dogma, 
holding it out as the ultimate moral vision for the ordering of human existence, end quote. So what, what can we throw in here for examples? I mean, just to, from the evangelical church, the belief in an inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative Bible. It's the word of God. It's without mistake. It's without error. That is sacred science. Or in the case of Chris Shelton and Scientology, the teachings of L. Ron Hubbard, Dianetics, that's sacred science. The Book of Mormon or other of Joseph Smith's or other teachings in the Mormon church, that is sacred science. Jehovah's Witnesses have the New World Translation. All right, It can't be questioned. It's put up on a pedestal. And in the case of evangelicals, what they do is they develop something that's called bibliolatry. It's essentially worship of the Bible. They worship the Bible because it is sacred science. You can't question it. You can't question its dogma. It is the ultimate high standard by which all believers are judged in that worldview. So what about the effect on the individual? You come into a system that has a sacred science sort of teaching or platform. Well, Lifton says in his book, quote, the totalist sacred science can offer much comfort and security. Its appeal lies in its seeming unification of the mystical and logical modes of experience, end quote. However, there's a downside to the whole thing too. He goes on, but the posture of unquestioning faith, he says, both rationally and non-rationally derived, in other words, by revelation, in the case of the Bible, it's not easy to sustain, he says, especially if one discovers that the world of experience is not nearly as absolute as the sacred science claims it to be, end quote. In other words, what happens when the sacred science held up by the group is exposed as fraudulent, it's fake, or in the case of the Bible, it's got contradictions or errors or problems. I mean, look at the Mormon church, for example. They cannot face the fact that the Book of Mormon is filled with factual and historical errors in Joseph Smith's account of major Jewish civilization living for centuries down in South America. There is zero archaeological, factual, historical evidence to support the Book of Mormon. It's utterly false. It's not true. It cannot be proven no matter what they say. But yet, it's sacred science. You cannot question and you begin to see the cognitive dissonance I have that burning in the bosom. That's what a Mormon will tell you if you confront him or her with the errors and flaws and problems in the Book of Mormon. No, I know it's true because the Holy Spirit has given me the burning in the bosom. Therefore, it's all true. I can't, I can't look at this. And basically what happens in evangelicalism or any cult sort of experience, I've heard Dr. Yanya Lalich make this point. She says, in your brain, it's like you have a mental shelf sitting you know, nailed to the wall. And you begin to put these objections and problems on that mental shelf. Every time there's a problem with the Bible or the Book of Mormon or Dianetics or whatever it might be, whatever your sacred science in your group. But eventually, all those things pile up and pile up and pile up and the cognitive dissonance becomes too much. And the shelf can't take the weight and it crashes down. It collapses in a big heap on the floor. That is generally the moment where people say, oh my God. This is all BS. I've got to get out of this thing, or at least I'm going to start deconstructing. I can't sustain the cognitive dissonance any longer, and they begin the process of getting out. So moving on then, number six is loading the language. Loaded language or thought-terminating cliches, what is it? It involves, quote, literalism and a tendency to deify words or images. A simplified, cliche-ridden language can exert enormous psychological force, 
reducing every issue in a complicated life to a single set of slogans that are said to embody the truth as a totality, end quote, from his article, Cult Formation. And in the book, Lifton expands on this by saying, quote, the language of the totalist environment is characterized by the thought-terminating cliché. The most far-reaching and complex of human problems are expressed into brief, highly reductive, definitive-sounding phrases, easily memorized and easily expressed. They become the start and finish of any ideological analysis, end quote. I mean, look at the examples just in the evangelical church. Christianese. What is Christianese? Well, basically, Christianese are slogans, little catchphrases that Christians will tell themselves, you know, God's in control. All things work together for the good for those who love God. That's an actual biblical quote, you know, and they'll say things like that. Well, you're about to go on a trip. Traveling mercies to you. Hope you have a safe trip. God's going to watch over you. You know, I'm going to pray a hedge of protection over your life so Satan can't get you. These are examples of Christianese, but they're also really loaded language, thought-terminating cliches. When you're confronted with a question or a doubt, into your mind pops a slogan, a loaded language phrase. And something that Stephen Hassan talks about in his book, Combating Cult Mind Control, he was trying to deprogram essentially a Hare Krishna uh, devotee. And as soon as he would give questions and, and ask this person about problems within their religion, they would just start chanting. <laughs> Anytime they were confronted with questions or doubts, they would just start chanting uh, these mantras. And they couldn't think while they're chanting. They couldn't think about the cognitive dissonance. And again, talking to Chris Shelton, Scientology uses all kinds of acronyms. They describe someone who's on the outside. They're an SP. They're a suppressive person. So if I start talking to a Scientologist and I start giving them information about the fallacies within their belief system, boom, you're just an SP. I don't need to listen to you because you're an SP. Thought terminating cliche, loaded language. Basically, what is the effect on the individual psychologically? Lifton says, quote from his book, the effect of the language of ideological totalism can be summed up in one word, constriction. He is, so to speak, linguistically deprived. And since language is so central to all human experiences, his capacities for thinking and feeling are immensely narrowed, end quote. The person may not feel psychologically chained, but is nonetheless, in effect, confined and bound up by what he calls these verbal fetters, these verbal handcuffs. Loaded language is a fantastic way for someone not to have to think or to think critically. Doubts or fears, questions, concerns about the truth of the organization, the sacred science, the leader, the cult leader, it is one part that can be quickly shut down and just dispel those feelings of cognitive dissonance. That's the fastest way to suppress your cognitive dissonance is to use loaded language or thought-terminating cliches. And you can see that, as I say, within not just cults, but certainly within evangelicalism. All right, there's two more that we want to look at. Number seven is doctrine over person. And from his article, Lifton comments, quote, the principle of doctrine over person is invoked when cult members sense a conflict between what they are experiencing, so their personal feelings, and what dogma says they should experience. The internalized message of the totalistic environment is that one must negate that personal experience on behalf of the truth of the dogma or the sacred science. Contradictions become associated with guilt. Doubt indicates one's own deficiency or evil, end quote. And in the book, he says that doctrine over person is, quote, the subordination of human experience to the claims of doctrine, end quote. 
This is fundamental to our own sense of integrity. What happens when that feeling of cognitive dissonance becomes overwhelming? Do you just stuff it down, take refuge in loaded language and carry on, or begin to think critically and perhaps entertain the notion that you just may have been lied to? And I've seen this again so many times within evangelicalism, doctrine over person, the way I mentioned earlier, the way oftentimes Christians treat their fellow believers. They will treat their fellow believers like absolute trash. And that is because in their view, I have told them the truth. My doctrine takes precedence over you, the person. And therefore, because you feel hurt is completely immaterial. That doesn't matter because I'm telling you the truth in air quotes or capital T truth. I've seen this happen and you can't entertain that sense of cognitive dissonance. This is the thing in your own mental capacity. You, that's why there's loaded language. When that cognitive dissonance becomes too much, you take refuge in the sacred science. You take refuge in the loaded language and you stuff down the cognitive dissonance and you say, well, that's what the Bible teaches and I've just got to believe it. You know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's what the bumper sticker says. There's no room for thinking in that system. Now, I was thinking about it. There might be even more of a clear example of this issue of doctrine over person. So my first example is this issue of how Christians treat each other, where their doctrine or their belief system will take priority over personal relationships. But what about the issue of, as Lifton mentions, when your feelings are swept aside because the doctrine says you shouldn't feel a certain way. My good friend, Dr. Terry Daniels, she wrote the book Grief and God. She's the host of the Ask Dr. Death podcast. And this is what she does for a living. She's sort of a secular uh, counselor, or I should say a hospice chaplain. And so she deals with people that are, you know, obviously she's around death and dying all the time. And she's mentioned to me on a few occasions that when she deals with evangelical Christians, when there's the death of a loved one, particularly in the case of some sort of real tragedy, I mean, we're talking about the death of a child or the sudden death of a loved one in a, in a car crash or an accident, or someone suffers, has a terminal illness like cancer or leukemia, something like that, where their suffering is just terrible and then they finally die. When there's a Christian family or a Christian person that's dealing with the death of a loved one, especially as I say, when it's a, a real tragedy sort of situation, this, I think, is one of the most clear-cut examples of how doctrine over person works. And this is what Terry Daniel talks about. She says that the problem with Christians when, they, when it comes to death and dying is they can't allow themselves to experience the full range of human emotions because that's what they're feeling, the grief, the loss, the anger, the whatever it might be, mourning. They are stuffing that down because their doctrine says, no, you shouldn't entertain those normal human feelings because your loved one is in heaven. All the suffering and the pain is gone. They're walking the streets of gold. God has wiped every tear out of their eye. You can hear that. Again, the Christianese, the loaded language, when it comes to a situation uh, around death and dying, and they can't allow themselves to experience really the full range of human emotions, and it really messes them up. And this is something that Terry Daniel has experienced time after time after time because the doctrine has taken precedence over their feelings, doctrine over person. And so that really causes problems perhaps month, months or years later down the road when they haven't really dealt with their actual emotions from the death, the loss of this loved one. And then they're left struggling with the aftermath of these emotions that they have not allowed themselves to feel because they've been told to rejoice. Now, I don't want to keep going on and on about this, but there's a really classic example. Someone in our closed Facebook group just yesterday pointed out this article on the Federalist website, thefederalist.com. 
Now, before we talk about the article, let's just point out that The Federalist is a far-right conservative website, blog, podcast. They've been caught out giving false information on COVID and some other things. Uh, one of the big things is who's funding this website, and a lot of people think it's Dick Uline, who is, of course, a major Trump supporter. So there's some questions there about who funds this thing. But there's an article that came out just on, just the other day as I'm doing this recording, October 18, 2021, by a certain Joy Pullman. And the, t- the title of the article is, For Christians, Dying for COVID or Anything Else is a Good Thing. So she's going to make this argument that death is actually good. And I'm just going to read you this quote because she's talking about COVID, which is another whole deal. We've seen churches that refuse to close, Christians who refuse to wear masks, who refuse to get vaccinated. It's almost become, I've said before, an apocalyptic death cult, Christianity in America, certainly. And she goes on to talk about that. She says, quote, For one thing, Christians believe that life and death belong entirely to God. There is nothing we can do to make our days on earth one second shorter or longer. And she quotes some verses from Psalms and from Paul about, you know, we live, whether we live or die, we die, we're the Lord's, you know, to live as Christ, to die as gain and all the rest of it. And then she goes on to say, for another thing, for Christians, death is good. Yes, death is also an evil. Its existence is a result of sin. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ has redeemed even death. And I would say that's that's a classic example of loaded language. She goes on to say, in his resurrection, Christ has transformed death into a portal to eternal life for Christians. What Satan meant for evil, God has transformed into good. And she's talking about death. Now she quotes a hymn from 1540. She says, there's a Dutch hymn called, In God, My Faithful God. And the hymn reads as follows, quote, If death my portion be, it brings great gain to me. It speeds my life's endeavor to live with Christ forever. He gives me joy in sorrow. Come death now or tomorrow, end quote. So that hymn has been around since the 16th century. So this thinking is nothing new. But of course, COVID has made this even more clear. Now, this is what I really wanted to highlight from her article. She goes on to say, quote, The Christian faith makes it clear that death, while sad to those left behind and a tragic consequence of human sin, is now good for all who believe in Christ. A Christian funeral is a cause for rejoicing, albeit understandably through tears from those of us temporarily left behind, end quote. And the point is, she says, this actually comes from scriptural doctrine. Okay, Paul himself said, you know, uh, if I want to be away from the body, I, I'm going to be at home with the Lord to live, as, to, to live as Christ, to die as gain, you know, that kind of thing. So this sort of thinking is, we see it so clear. This is doctrine over person in the case, certainly, of COVID. Now, I think there's one more corollary thing that I want to talk about. I don't want to keep going on and on about this, but before we move on to Lifton's last marker of cults, let's look at this one last issue. And that has to do with the issue of how Christians relate to suffering, really a theology of suffering, which obviously relates to death and loss and dying and suffering in terms of illnesses and other things that happen in our lives. Again, Christians, and I can remember doing this when I was an evangelical, I would always have to come up with basically what's called a theodicy, which is an explanation for why God allows suffering to happen to good people. And this is another issue. You can't allow yourself to experience especially the anger, the loss, the grief, whatever feelings you might be feeling, you have to somehow justify why God has allowed this to happen in your life because that is what the doctrine teaches. So again, these are clear-cut cases, I think, of doctrine over person, certainly within evangelical Christianity. 
Well, what happens to the person, quote, who finds himself under such doctrine-dominated pressure to change is thrust into an intense struggle with his own sense of integrity. That's your authentic self. He goes on, a struggle which takes place in relation to polarized feelings of sincerity and insincerity. In a totalist environment, absolute sincerity is demanded. And the major criterion for sincerity, he says, is likely to be one's degree of doctrinal compliance, both in regard to belief and to direction of personal change, end quote. Now, in this case, the problem comes in when you are still retaining sort of an alternative view. In other words, let's say you're a person who became a Christian later in life. You were already an adult or you had some years under your belt before you became a Christian. You're going to still have doubts and questions and concerns, and that's from your authentic self before you became a Christian. You're bringing that into this new system. So you might retain that alternative view of reality. The question is, will that be suppressed or will it carry on to the point where you're uh, able to deconstruct? And so it depends on a couple of factors. Will that retain that sense of reality? Number one, how strong your previous identity is. In other words, that person you were before you became a believer, before you entered that religion. Number two, the degree of penetration of the milieu by outside ideas. In other words, how strong is that milieu control? How strong is the information control? If things can filter in that might feed into your cognitive dissonance, that's a question. Whereas groups that are totalist groups, high control groups, the information control is absolutely total. So there's, that's why they're so keen to stop people from looking on the internet, from talking to non-believers, because they don't want them influenced by ideas from the outside. And then number three, how much capacity you've retained for eventual individual renewal. So after you leave the group, how much capacity, it's like a battery that's been completely drained down, but it can be recharged, it can be re rebuilt. And that's the question, how much capacity do you have for that renewal. So it's a description basically of someone who enters a cult, as I say, or a religion at some point in life and then later leaves it. Now I would say it's a completely different proposition for those of us second generation cultists. We were born into it. I was born into my cult. I was born into that religion. From day one, I was in church and I was raised in it and taught to believe it was 100% true. In that case, I never had a pre-religion identity to which I could return after leaving the group. So what I'm saying then is there's really a difference, what I call first generation and second generation people in religion. First generation are people who were, let's say, adults or they were already of a certain age before they joined that religion. So they had a pre-religion identity. Second generation people in religion like me, we were second or third or fourth or however many generations of our family were already involved in that religion. We were born into it. We never had a choice. We never had a pre-religion identity to which we could return after leaving the group. So our path, those of us that were second generation, our path to recovery and reconstruction looks a lot different than first generation. They have an authentic self that they can sort of go back and recover. We never had one. So in a sense, a lot of people that were second or third or fourth generation, people like me, when we left the group, what happens is you have to kind of go back and say, I don't even know who I am because I've always been that religious identity. There was never a sense of doubling because 
I never had a chance. That's always sort of who I thought I was. Doubling, as Lifton talks about elsewhere, is really prevalent in the first generation people, people who had a, a, an identity before they joined the group, then they had to develop a very strong religious identity, then when they left it, they have to go back and recover. For those of us that were born into it, what oftentimes happens is we feel like we've lost our whole period of our lives. A lot of times you'll find people like me, they sort of have to relive their adolescence. That's why people can go cr a little bit crazy. You go sleep all, sleep around, go all over the place, sexual experimentation, all the things that were forbidden in that cult of confession and demand for purity. We go out and we get all kinds of tattoos. We go crazy. We dye our hair pink, blue, purple, shave it off, grow it long, whatever we do. And it's, it's kind of like becoming a teenager again, a rebellious teen. We're going to do all the things that they told us we couldn't do. Now that I'm an adult, no one's going to tell me what to do. And so the pendulum can swing and even more in an extreme direction, but that's not who the person is forever. It does come back, hopefully, into some kind of balance, and that becomes this journey of sort of establishing our true, authentic identity because we never had one before while we were raised in the group. All right, so let's look at the last one, dispensing of existence. What this involved, according to Lifton, is this from his article, quote, those who have not seen the light and embraced the truth are wedded to evil, tainted, and therefore, in some sense, usually metaphorical, lack the right to exist. That is one reason why a cult member being threatened with cast into outer darkness may experience a fear of extinction or collapse, end quote. And we see this so much in virtually every cult, most religions, they have this fear. And if you leave the group, you are evil. You are personally tainted. You then lack the right to exist. Not, and he says it's a metaphorical term, they're not going to kill you, but they're going to shut you off. They're going to cut you off from every avenue of you know, re re reconnecting with friends, family members, people who are still in the group, that community that you had. This is something that Stephen Hassan talks about. He says that cults, well, what they'll do is they'll implant fears and phobias in their followers, such as the fear of hell, extinction, or being shunned, or the very real danger of being forcibly pulled out of the group by friends and family members and deprogrammed. And this is something he talked about. He was uh, on that Crusaders Vice documentary about the Jehovah's Witnesses. And he mentioned this, that the, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a really effective way of implanting phobias in their followers, the fear of Armageddon, the fear of going to hell. And they hold up as examples people who have been shunned or disfellowshipped, as they call it in the JWs. And they'll say, don't, you don't want that happening to you. And we will disfellowship you if you leave the group, if you question, if you become too much of a troublemaker, we will kick you out. You will never see your friends again. You'll never see your family again. And people don't want to do that. So they hold that over their heads. And this is a very real threat. And basically it's an implantation of a fear or a phobia. When I was an evangelical, I had the fear of missing the rapture. I had the fear of going to hell. So for me, leaving the religion, and many, many people have said this, the biggest phobia that we have to overcome is the fear of hell. I mean, if we're wrong, we're going to hell. As an ex-evangelical, as an ex-Christian, I'm going to hell if what I'm saying is wrong. What I don't believe anymore, I'm going to hell. And so you have to get over that. And also, we've all seen many, many cases where you know, this is a biblical teaching. Paul talks about this. He says, there's a guy in the church who's involved in sin. You need to cut him off, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Maybe he'll repent if he goes through enough suffering and all these horrible things come down on him. That's a biblical teaching. That's church discipline. 
But yet, as uh, Robert Lifton would say, that's the dispensing of existence. So basically, like, for example, as Hassan talks about, if you fill the members with the fear of deprogrammers, you don't want to get pulled out and, and deprogrammed, that makes you shelve your questions, shelve your doubts, your spiritual survival is at stake here. And this is seen in so many cults, so many religions, when people leave, as I said, they're shunned, they're disfellowshipped, J-dubs, they are apostates, Scientologists, called them an SP or a suppressive person. They'll have nothing to do with them thereafter. And that's a very hard thing to do if you've lost the relationship. You had a, a vibrant sense of community with your church, with your group, whatever it was, and maybe you've lost all contact with your family, which is deeply painful, deeply hurtful. What do you do? How do you, you can't get that back because they won't talk to you anymore. What's the effect on the individual in terms of this dispensing of existence? He talks about in the book, quote, the polar emotional conflict is the ultimate existential one of being versus nothingness. He is likely to be drawn into a conversion experience, which he sees as the only means of attaining a path of existence for the future, end quote. Thus, the totalist environment stimulates a total fear of annihilation or of extinction of the follower or being disfellowshipped or whatever. One can only overcome this fear and find confirmation only in the, quote, fount of all existence, the totalist organization, end quote, or the church or the cult or whatever it is. Additionally, as I mentioned, the dispensing of existence is a very real threat to members who might otherwise contemplate leaving. Being shunned, as I said, equals the loss of one's community, family, friends, close relationships, etc. That's your entire support network. The fear of losing that entire network is can be terrifying. And you're seeing examples, as I say, they help, they will hold up examples of others who have let that happen to them. That's oftentimes a strong deterrent, keeping people from leaving the cult or leaving that religion. And if their life falls apart, and this is something Rachel Bernstein mentioned in our recent chat, she's from the Indoctrination podcast, and she says, you know, going back to that example of the pendulum that swings, when that person leaves the cult, leaves the religion, they go out and they start sleeping around, they start doing all kinds of sexual experimentation, they get tattoos, maybe their life does fall apart. But that's the pendulum. But the, the church or the group will say, aha, you see, I told you, look, Satan's got a hold of her. Satan's got a hold of him. Look how their life has been destroyed. Look at the damage they're doing to themselves, to their friends, their family, whatever, by going kind of crazy. See, don't let that happen to you. That's an example of what happens when you leave the church or you leave the group, you leave the religion and you, you fall apart just like that person. But what they don't understand is that that's all part of that pendulum swinging back and it's going to come back into some form of balance, but they're not letting the person have that time to sort of live out that, you know, kind of adolescent phase, kind of going crazy for a while. Some people never get over it, but most of us, we do come back into some kind of balance. I know I did. And I feel like now I'm on the journey of basically reconstructing, rebuilding. And a big part of that comes from uh, things like Robert J. Lifton, books like him, reading Stephen Hassan, reading Dr. Yanya Lalich, Take Back Your Life, reading Dr. Marlene Winnell's Leaving the Fold. There's so many good resources out there. And basically what it does is kind of what I've tried to do in this episode is to give you on the one hand, the education, the information, how were you controlled? How were you manipulated in your group, in your cult, in your church? That's the one thing. When you can start to name it, that is hugely empowering. You can say, Aha, that is what they did to me. And it wasn't just me. It was all of us in that group, in that church, in that cult, in that religion, whatever the belief was. That's what they did to me. I see that now. That is hugely empowering. And then the second thing is you start to realize 
what were the psychological effects of each one of these eight markers. It, it does something to us. It absolutely does something to us psychologically from which we now have to rebuild. We have to recover. We've got to put the pieces back together. We've got to rediscover our authentic self or in some cases discover our authentic self. We've got to do away with that religious self you know, get rid of the loaded language and get rid of all those demands for purity and all those impossible standards that they put on us, how do we rebuild? Well, as I say, education is one of the biggest pieces. And then networking with other ex-cult members, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, ex-Mormons, ex-Christians, ex-Scientologists, whatever the belief system that you came out of, there are massive online communities on Twitter. You can use various hashtags like hashtag exvangelical, XJW, exmormon, those kind of things, exscientologists. You can connect with people like me and I will put you in touch with people who maybe came out of the religion or belief system that you were a part of or point you in the right direction. In a sense, then, we have to form a new tribe. We have to build a new community. And that may mean joining an existing community that's already out there on social media. So it can be hugely helpful if you've lost that connection with friends and family, you've been shunned, you've been disfellowshipped, you've been labeled an SP or an apostate or whatever it was, and you've been completely cut off. We desperately need community. We have to have it. And when you find out that a, you're not the only one that this has happened to, and then B, you're not crazy, and that C, there are many tens of thousands, maybe millions of people worldwide who have had the exact same experience as you, they're in the same place as you, and they're rebuilding their lives as well. That, as I say, is hugely empowering. So hopefully this has helped you, this little study on Robert J. Lifton's Eight Markers of Cults and specifically comparing it mainly to evangelicalism. Hopefully that's been a helpful educational piece for you. Let me know what your thoughts, questions, and comments are on this episode. I would love to chat with you. You can find me online at MindShift2018 on Twitter. You can send me a DM there or tweet to me. You can also find the MindShift Podcast Facebook page. It's a public Facebook page. From there, you can send me an email. Just click the little button on the page. Send me an email and I will respond to you and reply back as soon as I can. Thanks for listening in. This has been your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, coming along that journey of reconstruction after deconstruction here on the MindShift Podcast.